Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 132, The History of Europe, part 6. Last week we talked about lots of lovely social and economic stuff, and the technology discoveries of the 13th and 14th century. So this time, and indeed next time, let's move on to the political changes across Europe. There are, incidentally, vast numbers of place names in this week's episode, so hi thee to the website and have a look at some of the maps. Now, since it was so long ago that we looked at the broader European political context, I'll start with a very brief recap of where I think we got to last time. If you have a perfect memory, zone out now for a minute or so. The main theme, as I remember, was the beginning of the end of the old unity of Christendom, and the formation of the modern nation-states of Europe as the main driver of European politics. This is a theme which very much continues into the 14th century. Paradoxically, this decline of the unifying power of the papacy came at the very same time as the papacy's final victory over the Hohenstaufen, with the defeat of Frederick II and his legitimate offspring, Conrad, and illegitimate offspring, Manfred we saw the development of the Angevin kingdom of Sicily, overthrown by the Sicilian Vespers' revolt. So now, where there was once one kingdom, of Sicily and the southern part of Italy, there are two kingdoms. One on the Italian mainland, the kingdom of Naples, ruled by Robert the Wise, and the kingdom of Sicily, ruled by the Aragonese house of James II, the Just. How lucky the lot of the impoverished peasant to be ruled by the Wise and the Just. You know all about France in the 15th century, of course. You know all about France in the 14th century, of course. They will bring you up to date with Charles VI and his outrageous uncles next time. And as far as Germany is concerned, 
After the death of Conrad and his son Conradin, we leave them in an interregnum with no emperor whatsoever. In northern Italy, we have all those Italian city republics squabbling and trading away for supremacy. To the east, where Byzantium used to stand as a living memory of the Roman Empire, we left rather early, with the mess after the crime of 1204 and the sack by the Christian Latin West of Byzantium and the establishment of a Latin Empire. So we'll have a bit of catching up to do there. And we had sadly completely ignored Central and Eastern Europe, Mea culpa, Mea Maxima culpa. We'll put that right a little bit, not this week, but next. So that's where we are. Time to zone in again. The question is where to start, and on this one, unusually, Mary Poppins has nothing to offer, since starting at the very beginning isn't an option here. And anyway, Hawkins would say that time is a loop, would he not? Slightly randomly, let's start with Spain. You will remember, hopefully, that the Spanish peninsula in 1300 consisted of four Christian states. Portugal in the west on the Atlantic coast, Aragon, centred on Barcelona, Catalonia and Valencia on the eastern seaboard, Tiny Navarre on the French-Spanish border, and Castile, the ten-ton guerrilla which took up all the rest. In the south, in Andalusia, we have the last Moorish dynasty, the Nazarids, ruling the Kingdom of Granada, though basically dancing to the tune of Castile. Navarre is quickly dealt with, and is our opportunity to polish off Charles the Bad, Charles of Navarre. Forgive me if we've already done this and I've forgotten, but hey, it's a great story, so never mind. The year is 1387. All of Charles's machinations have basically come to naught, and he was left with just Navarre of all his possessions, and even that was ravaged by the Franco-English War. Now, to cap it all, at the age of 54, Charles was very badly ill and had lost the use of his limbs. So, his physicians, in desperation, decided that the perfect treatment would be to wrap him up in bandages, tip to toe, and soak all the bandages in a highly flammable liquid. Brandy, in this case. Every evening, a servant girl would come to dress his bandages and top up the brandy. So, on January the 1st, in she came as normal, carrying her candle. Everyone see where this is going? Once she was done, she spotted a stray thread hanging off the bandages. Now, she's a tidy-minded girl, hated to leave any loose ends. Obviously, cutting it off would seem like a good idea to us, but no, she thought she'd burn it off with her candle. Whoosh! Up went Charles like a bonfire and died in screaming agony. Even for Charles the Bad, that wasn't a way anyone deserves to go. As we'll discuss with England sometime, for a while at least, losing those French possessions proved something of a boon for Navarre. Charles the Bad's successor, Charles III, concentrated on Navarre and on keeping his nose clean, and Navarre was the better for it until the mid-15th century and a dose of dynastic civil war. Charles the Bad's daughter, Joan of Navarre, incidentally, had met Henry Bolingbroke on his travels, and there seems to have been a genuine meeting of minds. And so in 1403, to the horror and consternation of the French royal family, and the surprise of the English, she would become the Queen of England. The story of the reconquest of Christian Spain had very much been the story of the Kingdom of Castile, which in the process had also eaten up other Christian kingdoms. The legacy of the Reconquest, though, was in the weakness of central royal power. The Moorish population 
generally fled after an area was conquered by the Christians, leaving an empty land that needed to be filled with the settlers, who in turn had to be enticed by generous terms and privileges. The reconquest itself had often been driven by holy military orders, themselves granted privileges by the crown to encourage them. Now this might have been okay if things had been able to settle down and the crown had been able to re-establish control, but you already know something of the dynastic civil war and struggle between Pedro the Cruel and the House of Castile and the Trasmatara family that took the crown through rebellion and the intervention of John of Gaunt on behalf of his wife Constance, Pedro's daughter. In the end, matters were settled when Constance's daughter Catherine married the Trastamara heir. But the impact of all these slightly tiresome dynastic squabbles were to leave Castile weakened until its throne was combined with that of Aragon. Yet more concessions had to be made to an already overpowerful nobility during these squabbles and the eye was firmly taken off the national ball. But meanwhile, Aragon was having a ball, completely opposite to Castile. Barcelona had flourished as a trading port, and although it began to fall on hard times as maritime trade slowed down, Valencia duly took up the slack. And during the course of the 13th and 14th century, they rather carelessly acquired an empire. The Balearic Islands, Sicily, the Peloponnese, and in the 15th century even Naples. Aragonese nobles fought as hard as the Castilian ones to gain privileges and freedoms, but the stability of the royal house and its success abroad left it in a much more centralised and powerful state. OK, so that's Spain. And now turning to Germany. After the death of Manfred and Conradin, the popes appear to have won their struggle with the Holy Roman Emperors. For 20 years, until the election of Rudolf of Habsburg, the Germans learned how to get along just fine without an emperor. The empire was divided forever. Naples and Sicily seemed to have no prospect of returning to the rule of a single emperor like Frederick. The obsession of Frederick and his predecessors with northern Italy had resulted in their trading away of rights in Germany in exchange for money, men and no distractions. And the German nobility was more than happy to go along with a weak monarchy. Every time an emperor was elected, the emperor, of course, used their position and traditional rights to start down the road of centralisation and building a power base. Each time they had any success, the German nobility got nervous. So let's take Rudolf of Habsburg, for example. Elected emperor in 1273, with far too little power to direct and control his empire. But he had some success by using his position as emperor to build up a greater landholding, and beginning to build on that enhanced base to build the prestige and authority of the monarchy. And as a result on his death, did the nobility elect his son? No, of course not. They elected a chap called Adolf of Nassau, a man of even smaller means than Rudolf had originally been. And so, back to square one. The key problem was the elective principle. It made it quite impossible to build on the achievements of previous emperors. By now there was pretty much no domain land left to the office of emperor anyway, so each new incumbent started from scratch from what they had themselves. Each new emperor used the rights they had as hard as they could to build their power base, but the revival of the empire was beyond practical politics. And the history of Germany becomes the history of the parts 
rather than of the whole, a patchwork of Princetons. Key to this process was the Golden Bull of 1356, at the Imperial Diet, or Council, during the reign of Charles IV. This confirmed that there were seven princes with the power to elect the Holy Roman Emperor. Of these, three were ecclesiastical, the Archbishops of Mainz, Trier and Cologne, and four were secular, Brandenburg, the Palatinate of the Rhine, Saxony and Bohemia. These princes, or electors, as they were known, were virtually confirmed as independent states and in fact were forbidden to subdivide their lands to avoid any proliferation of electoral rights. Actually, in this elective process, the Pope was equally irrelevant in Germany now. By an earlier diet in 1338, the nobility had already declared that the Pope's confirmation was not required. One of the main gainers from the debris of imperial decentralisation was the Swiss Confederation. Oddly enough, the Swiss were threatened not by imperial power, but by the power of their local nobility, who happened to be the family of former emperor, the Habsburgs. The point is that these locally powerful noble families were no longer constrained by a strong central authority. So they were able to build their own rights and landholding by whatever means they chose. And so the Habsburg family had sought to consolidate their power over their lands in what is now known as Switzerland. Now, as you'll know, the Swiss are an opinionated lot and don't take kindly to any loss of their liberties, so they decided to object. At the beginning, there were three forest cantons, or areas, that shared a few crucial characteristics. These cantons were already effectively corporations and had their very own form of governance. Their social makeup was similar, two-thirds of the population being a free peasantry and their location played a crucial part in the coming revolt. They were all centred on Lake Lucerne and the Saint-Gothard Pass, giving them access to valuable tolls from trade. While they also lived on poor agricultural land, which meant a willingness for the Swiss to serve abroad as mercenaries, and their citizens to have gained the skills of war. In 1291, then, the three cantons came together to form a confederacy. In 1314, they claimed direct allegiance to the emperor rather than to their Habsburg overlords, which in effect, of course, now meant a bid for independence, since the emperor's power wasn't worth the rough end of a pineapple. The following year, the Habsburgs invaded to re-establish their rights, and with great confidence, Duke Leopold and his knights advanced to crush the rustic Swiss. But they met an enemy that knew their terrain, and at the Battle of Morgarden, the Habsburg knights struggled up the steepest slopes, slopes on which they could hardly stand, while the Swiss used crampons. The Swiss surrounded and surprised the Habsburg army with their local knowledge of a challenging landscape, and then, from the chronicler of John Winterthur, is this entry. Also, the Swiss were armed with a lethal kind of battle axe, which is called Halberg, in the vernacular. With this terrifying weapon, they could cut up even well-armoured opponents as though with a razor, slicing them in pieces. It was a massacre. But it was a massacre by the Swiss on the Habsburg, not the other way around. And that weapon, wielded by Swiss mercenaries, would become the terror of Europe as country after country employed them in the core of their armies as mercenaries. 
The immediate result was a strengthening of the Swiss pact, each canton agreeing to work together against the Habsburgs. Over the 14th century, they gained two more rural cantons and three towns, Lucerne, Zurich and Bern. And for a while, they were able to consolidate as the Habsburgs concentrated on their Austrian lands. But then, in 1386, the Habsburgs were back, with an army better, bigger and even more confident than before. So quite why... 1,500 Swiss were able to defeat 5,500 Habsburg knights and foot soldiers at the Battle of Sempach is really not explained anywhere. The Swiss themselves have a legend of Arnold von Winkelried, a knight who threw himself onto the Habsburg pikes to create a hole in their line. But the legend derives probably as much from general dumbstruckness that this thing could happen as from anything else. Sempach confirmed that Switzerland was here to stay and during the 15th century would consolidate and extend their borders and send out their mercenaries to become the scourge of Europe. Just as the weakness of the Holy Roman Emperor meant that Germany fragmented, so it meant that their control in northern Italy all but evaporated. During the struggle between Pope and Emperor, the city-state had become supreme, usually governed by the Republican Commune, over 200 of them at its height. The theme of the 13th and 14th century are driven by the heavily polarised politics of these city-states, the struggle for supremacy amongst the jostling cities and the inexorable journey towards consolidation of power into a few dominant states. It's not that the emperors were irrelevant in all of this. The more active emperors could and did try to intervene to reassert their authority, but by and large, they lacked the power to do so effectively. And meanwhile, as it thrashed around in its agony and chaos, the papacy itself was often powerless to intervene, though it did firmly establish control over its own hinterland in the papal state of central Italy. This is the period of the Condottieri, when city-states hired generals and mercenaries to fight for them. For freebooters released from the Hundred Years' War, northern Italy was the place to make your fortune. The classic example was the son of an English tanner, John Hawkwood. Hawkwood's military skills allowed him to amass a fortune, marry the daughter of the Duke of Milan, and after his death, be commemorated with a monument in the cathedral in Florence. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The name of emperor and pope remained nonetheless a potent symbol. The division of cities into factions, Guelph, nominally supporters of the pope, and Ghibelline, nominally supporters of the emperor, remained a clear fault line. Emperor and Pope were often reduced to an attempt to use their own traditional rights to win local influence. A great example of this is Gian Galeazzo, the Visconti ruler of Milan, 
who won the title of Duke from the Emperor. For the Emperor, with the gift came an alliance. For the Visconti came legitimacy. But don't be fooled. None of the Italian states wanted rule by anyone except for themselves. The Republican Commune, though, was always up against it in the survival stakes in this environment. The constant warfare and struggle for supremacy, whether Pope against Emperor or City against City, or faction against faction. In this environment, communes suffered from slow decision-making and discontinuity of personnel. Really, only the most organised city or faction could direct and control these private armies effectively. Equally, only the richest cities could employ a competitive army in the first place, and so through the 14th century, the larger cities gobbled up the smaller, moving slowly towards the primacy of a smaller number of states, Milan and Florence. Venice and Genoa, led by powerful, despotic families such as the Sforza and Visconti of Milan, the Medici of Florence. It's a history to get utterly lost in, a pageant of power and ups and downs and art and glittering magnificence of display, of brutal power and bloody massacres that makes the Game of Thrones and the Wars of the Roses look like child's play. So let's rather randomly pick a northern Italian city for a hideously brief history. Let's select the brave city of Cremona. Cremona sits on the south bank of the River Po, on the southern edge of Lombardy, and its position on a navigable waterway was very much part of its commercial success. The city came to prominence in 1098, when as part of a league of other cities it took issue with Emperor Henry IV defeated him in battle, which led to Henry and that amazing image of him kneeling in the snow outside the papal palace in Canossa, begging the forgiveness of the Pope Hildebrand. You might be forgiven, therefore, for thinking that Cremona would be a Guelph city. But in fact, Cremona is a great example of two political drivers. One, that these external allegiances were mainly driven by the constantly shifting sand of internal factions. And secondly, that allegiances to either Pope or Emperor were simply driven by who could offer them the best deal and help them grow their own position and power. So Cremona has the traditional Guelph and Ghibelline factions. However, they don't call themselves that until rather later. Their factions are the Capaletti, or the Quiffcutters, and the Barbarassi, the bearded ones. The Capaletti are Guelph, the Barbarassi, Ghibelline aligned to imperial power. Local politics are so heavily divisive in Cremona that there are actually almost two separate cities within one city, each with their own communal palace. These names of Capaletti and Barbarassi give you a clue. Local loyalties were much more important than the old external ones. Woe betide the emperor who imagined he would receive unquestioning loyalty. Once he's delivered his help, it's time to leave. Thanks for coming. Just to re-emphasise this point, Cremona rather unusually developed a third faction, the Maltraversi, splitters in the Pythonesque tradition of the Capaletti, under the leadership of a powerful local family, the Ponsoni. So, in the 13th century, Cremona increased its hinterland at the expense of other cities. It simply had the knack of picking the right side, fighting for Emperor Frederick Barbarossa in 1162, and then just five years later against Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, and laying low for a while its great rival, Milan, 
but Milan will be back. As Cremona power grew, the pattern repeated itself, until at last it picked the wrong side, fighting alongside the defeated Emperor Frederick II at the decisive Battle of Parma in 1248. Defeat pushed Cremona down the route of the rule by an autocratic despot, rather than by a republican commune. It's not a linear process. Initially, it's a condottieri who takes control, Umberto Pallavicino, a general who led them to victory against Parma to revenge the defeat of 1248. In triumph, incidentally, the trousers of the defeated Parmese general were hung in Cremona's cathedral. A nice touch, I think. You were so rubbish, I took your trousers. But then we get a brief period of reconstituted commune until it's finally snuffed out by the Cavalcabo family. The arrival of the Cavalcabo's despotic rule up to 1322 brought Cremona to the height of its power and relative prosperity. Its population, for example, was 80,000 against today's 69,000. But like many cities, Cremona's independence came to an end at the hands of Milan. In Milan, the Visconti family had forced themselves to power and ruled the city from 1277 until the end of their line in 1447. And so, by the end of the 14th century, Italy is well on its way to its 15th century configuration of five powers. In the north, Milan controls virtually all of Lombardy, and only Venice can compete with it. Further south in Tuscany, Florence holds sway. Further south still, other papal states, and then furthest south is the Angevin kingdom of Naples. Now, while we're on Italy, we should discuss the trials and tribulations of the papacy. The 14th century is essentially not a high point for the poor old popes. And sadly, the 15th century ain't going to get any better. We've already discussed the move to Avignon and that in 1378 it got even worse. Pope Gregory IX had tried to return to Rome, but the net result, after all the shouting was done, was two popes. Urban in Rome and Clement at Avignon. The papacy was unpopular enough with secular governments anyway. Their attempts to regularise the allocation of benefices was partly self-serving, but also partly quite rightly to get rid of the local secular influence thing in church appointments. But sensible or not, it went down like a fart at a funeral in England and Germany in particular. The existence of two popes vying for favour removed most of the Pope's capacity to influence events and negotiate and made them extremely vulnerable to forced concessions. The challenge, though, was not just about practicalities. It led also to both philosophical challenge and heresy. We've already talked about Wycliffe and his views on the primacy of the secular authorities over all matters temporal and his questioning of the existence of a church with such great wealth. I have, I admit been rubbish about the development of thought in the medieval world, and since it's a topic about which I am pretty rubbish in fact, it's a failing of which I intend to continue to be guilty. But spare a thought for William of Ockham. Ockham was an English Franciscan who lived between 1287 and 1347. He's best known for Ockham's razor, of course, the idea that with competing hypotheses and no certainty, the simplest solution is likely to be the correct one. His logical method challenged scholars all over Christendom with his view that people should not accept things they couldn't test through practical experience. 
Ockham's work on the primacy of secular authority in all matters temporal preceded that of Wycliffe and demonstrates that Wycliffe was very much part of a wider movement and tradition. The challenge to the church was not just about its temporal power, though. It was also in its spiritual unity. Before I remind you of Lollardy and talk about Jan Hus in Bohemia, I should say that none of this in any way suggests that piety in itself was on the decline, anything but. At most, it suggested a rise in anti-clericalism. The spread of pietism we noted in England with the likes of Marjorie Kemp, the growth of mysticism and the personal relationship with God with a direct understanding of the word of God in the vernacular. This was a European-wide movement, not just England. It was fuelled by the same things as in England, growing disillusionment with the church and the growth of lay literacy. So, for example, in Flanders, a mystic called Gerard Groot formed the Brethren of Common Life who copied books and ran schools and had a profound influence in spreading the sense of personal religion rather than the mediated-by-the-priest version. For another example, German mystics Eckhart and Tauler wrote religious texts in the vernacular in Germany. Pietism was one thing, and its strong strand of anti-clericalism worrying to the popes, but Wycliffe and the Lollards went significantly further. Lollardy was only regionally successful in England and by this time has been repressed in Oxford and although not completely dead, has gone underground. We'll deal with that more when we get back to England's story but in Bohemia, the movement it at least partially inspired, the movement for change reached far greater proportions through Jan Hus. Just to check you all know that Bohemia is essentially the western two-thirds of the modern Czech Republic. The startling thing about the movement that Jan Hus started was that here for the first time the forces of anti-clericalism, intellectual thought and popular piety made common cause together. A basis was laid by the popular preachers in Bohemia, Thomas Stitney and Militschow Kromaritz. They created a platform for people like Hus to speak at the Bethlehem Chapel in Prague, and a tradition of anti-clericalism and the need to reform the church. Jan Hus became a master at the University of Prague in 1396 and became rector of the university in 1402. He adopted many of the works of Wycliffe, translated some of those works and distributed them. His eloquence at the pulpit of the Bethlehem Chapel drew large crowds, and they heard him challenge the power and the role of the priest in the doctrine of transubstantiation. The Hussite movement was given the oxygen to grow, unlike Wycliffism, because of the odd political situation. The king, Wenceslas, was deeply suspicious of the popes, since he wanted to become a Holy Roman Emperor, and he ordered his church to remain neutral in this debate. He changed voting rules at the university and by so doing he essentially expelled foreign masters from Prague University and it became a Czech national school. He himself clearly had some sympathy for Hussite views. So the papal schism and his local support meant that the papal response was muted, late and confused and allow Hus's views to grow, become embedded, spread and crucially to become associated with national aspirations. In responding to these challenges, the Church had another problem, with the weakness of the Pope 
another power inevitably rose to fill the vacuum. And it was the College of Cardinals that became a power in itself, not always in agreement with its supposed master the Pope. So the Cardinals became like secular princes, and they were split into what felt like very nationally organised colleges. Eventually, though, the church did react. Prague's archbishop lodged a complaint against Hus's activity, and by 1410, Hus was excommunicated and his works were burned. But unlike Wycliffe in England, Hus remained free to spread the word. Which brings us to the Council of Constance. Sigismund, the King of the Romans, i.e. the Emperor-elect, called an ecumenical council which was to sit for four years between 1414 and 1418 at Constance on the Rhine. The council had so very much to resolve. It had to resolve the Great Schism, but more than that, it had to re-establish a spirit of unity and reform in the church. Hus had been invited to Constance, strictly under safe conduct, to explain his views in an effort to bring the spirit of reform inside the church, rather than leaving it outside to damage the concept of a united Christendom. When Hus arrived, at first he was at liberty to move around and preach as normal. But without warning and against all the assurances he'd been given, Hus was seized by the church authorities and thrown into the dungeon of a Franciscan friary. Sigismund's protests were ignored, though it has to be said that Sigismund's protests stopped soon enough. At the official preliminary investigation, prosecution was made, but no defence allowed. Chained to a wall for six months in 1415, Hus came to trial and refused to recant. In July 1415, he was condemned in the church at Constance and given one last chance again to recant and save his life. Again, he refused. He was led away, undressed and his hands tied by the executioner. He was tied to a stake and straw piled up around him to his neck. Again he was given the chance to recant, and again he refused. The fire was lit, Jan Hus burned, the chance of church unity burned with it, and Bohemia was to burn with crusade for the next twenty years. The Council of Constance achieved some unity in the sense that it got rid of the multiplicity of popes. There were in fact three by this time, and as you know, you can have enough of a good thing. So Pope Martin V was henceforth Pope, and the schism was at an end. But that was your lot. It emphatically did not produce unity. The Council of Constance behaved as the Council of Cardinals had begun to, splitting down on national lines. In the negotiations about who to make Pope, the French tried to get England removed as a nation in her own right. In church organisation, the English and Germans tried to stick out for reform, but no one could agree. And in the end, the English gave way, Pope Martin was elected, and everyone went home. In the main, the council resolved very little and rather confirmed the now predominance of national secular politics. The concept of a single unified Christendom was toast. Nowhere was this more true than in the struggle with the greatest threat Christendom had faced for centuries, the arrival of the Ottoman Turk. The last time the threat had come from the east, the Roman Empire and the former Byzantium had stood firm. Next week, we'll see what happens this time. Before that happens, let me thank two generous donators. James, thanks, you can be sure a few beers will figure highly. 
and Stephen, many thanks. And thanks also to everyone who comments on the website or iTunes or joins the Facebook group, and indeed to all of you for listening. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.